The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 94, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? They utter speech and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Understand, you senseless among the people, and you fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are futile. Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment will return to righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. If I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. Shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, have fellowship with you? They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. But the Lord has been my defense and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. Okay, we are in Deuteronomy 4. It is verses 8 through 14. So Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 8. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law, which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven, with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. 
In Homestead, Florida, some of you here may know this, there is a place called the Coral Castle. It was built by a Latvian immigrant to America named Edward Leedskalnen. He was engaged to a 16-year-old girl, but one day before the wedding, she bailed out on him. Putting that life behind, in the early 1920s, he moved to America and eventually came to Florida. There he began working on his home, which was a monument to the lost love of his life. Ed was only five feet tall. You think I'm small and skinny? This guy was only five feet tall and weighed around 100 pounds. And yet, the house he built includes blocks of olite limestone, meaning fossilized coral, over 25 feet tall and weighing over 30 tons. Thus, some of the stones are taller than those in Stonehenge and heavier than the heaviest stone in the Great Pyramid of Giza. The entry gate for the house weighs nine tons. Yes, the front door weighs 18,000 pounds, and it could be spun by a slight push by a child with a single finger. It is carved so that it fits within one quarter of an inch of the wall's that it swings in. It's a rotating door and it can swing within one quarter of an inch of those walls. In 1986, it stopped working. And so a crew was called in to repair it. It took six men and a 50 short ton crane to pull it out. After repairing it, it was set back in place. That lasted about 20 years and it had to be repaired again. But it has never rotated as precisely as it once did when he did it all by himself. It has never been discovered how he was able to do the work he did, and his secrets died with him. A lesson we can learn here is that great things must be passed on to another generation, or they will die off and they will be lost, maybe to never be recovered again. Our text verse comes from Romans chapter 3. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets— even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In our verses today, both the Lord and Moses note the importance of parents teaching the children what they know concerning the words of the Lord. If we find it a loss to think of not knowing how Ed Leedskalnen did what he did, How much more of a loss should it be considered when the word of the Lord is not passed on to the next generation? Or maybe even worse than that would be incorrectly passing on the word of the Lord. Who knows? Someone who is not trained in the word of the Lord might find a copy of it, read it, and come to him in it. That actually will be seen in today's sermon. But if someone is incorrectly taught the word of the Lord, the chances are likely that his doctrine will never be corrected. This is evidenced all over the world in people who learn incorrectly and who continue on in the incorrect pursuit of the word for the rest of their lives. What a catastrophe. Let us be sure to not only pass on the word of the Lord, but let us be absolutely sure that we are passing it on properly to the glory of God who gave it to us in the first place. Such truths as these are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is gather the people to me. It's verses 8 through 10. 
The final verse of the previous sermon asked, For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. That verse forms the middle of the ongoing chiasm which began in verse 325 and which will end in verse 422. Moses just asked which nation has God so near to it? It was a rhetorical question which demanded the answer, no such nation exists. Starting off where we left off, Moses now continues in this same line of thought by asking another rhetorical question. Verse 8, And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law? Moses asked concerning the nearness of God to the people, noting that for whatever reason they might call upon him. Now he asked concerning the statutes and righteous judgments. What nation possesses any that are comparable to that which is contained in their law? Again, it demands a negative answer. There is no such nation. The question is dependent on two different thoughts. The first is concerning the statutes and judgments which the Lord first commanded Moses. That was seen in verse 4-5. There Moses said, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me. The second thought is that it is those same laws that Moses is giving to teach the people. That was seen in verse 4-1, saying, Listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe. Both rhetorical questions are given in relation to the Lord God. The Lord is Israel's God, and he is near to them as a people. And the statutes and judgments find their source in the Lord God. Both of these together are what make them a great nation. Israel cannot claim the nearness of God as a right to call upon him unless they acknowledge meaning hear and obey the statutes and judgments which he has given. They are a reflection of him and a condition of a right relationship with him. The two questions asked by Moses show that the greatness of a nation is not truly based on its size, military power, wealth, or any other such thing. Rather, it is based on its relationship with God and on its form and structure of government, meaning its statutes and judgments which form the basis of it, both of which are available to Israel. At times, Israel had great military power, and Israel also had the greatest of wealth, especially under Solomon. But neither of these defined them, and neither of these could save them. Only in holding to the Lord and not to false idols, and only in observance of his law and not deviating from it, could Israel be considered a great nation. Moses says, it is these statutes and judgments, verse 8 continues, which I set before you this day. Lifnechem, before you. It is second person plural. Moses is setting these things before the people. There was a time when the law of Moses did not exist. The nation set up kingdoms and governments and they conducted their affairs according to their own set guidelines. Many of them had noble laws, some of which mirror the laws which are found in the law of Moses. The expectations of God are often natural laws which are known even to those who do not have the law. Paul shows this is true in Romans chapter 2. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. However, not all of what God expects of man is found in nature. And further, with the introduction of sin, 
corruption of what is right is introduced even into what is evident from nature. Thus, the otherwise noble laws of the nations contained corruptions of what is right, and they also lacked the fullness of what God expected. This would not be the case with the Mosaic Law. The laws of the nations could not provide life. They could only constrain or guide the people during life. The law of Moses, however, was given to give life, if it was adhered to. Hence, Moses implored them to be attentive to what he set before them. Verse 9, only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself. Only take heed to yourself and watch your soul exceedingly. First, this is a double imperative using the same Hebrew word shamar twice. Secondly, the words are in the second person singular. Each individual forming a collective whole is to do so. They are to watch their actions and they are to exceedingly confine the actions of their souls. A good parallel to this thought is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6 where Paul writes, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Thirdly, Moses will again use the word shamar in verse 415 in conjunction with the nature of God. No image bears his likeness, and therefore there is to be no image made attempting to reveal any likeness of anything which is then to be worshipped. It is the soul of the man which is tempted to fall into idolatry, and so each man was to carefully guard his soul from doing so. This is what Moses begins to speak to the people now. Verse 9 continues, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen. Although all but Joshua and Caleb of those 20 and above had died in the wilderness, those 19 and younger were spared. Those 20 and above had seen all of the events from the Exodus through until the arrival at the border of Canaan, and yet they forgot what their eyes had beheld. However, at the time of Moses' words, those who were around 45 up to those who were in their late 50s would have had vivid memories of the Exodus of the giving of the law, of the coming of the manna for the first time, of the water flowing from the rock, of enough quail coming to the camp to feed them all for a month, and on and on and on. Moses, however, will focus only on the giving of the law for his words here. It is that display and the events which surrounded it that established them as the Lord's people under his rule and authority. Their young, impressionable eyes would have seen those things, and in seeing, Moses implores them to not forget. And not forgetting was to be based on an active process of remembering by keeping and guarding themselves through observance of the laws that same Lord, through Moses, had set before them. Verse 9 continues, Then lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. In the Bible, when the heart is mentioned in this way, it never speaks of the organ which pumps blood, nor does it speak of the seat of emotions as we use it today. Rather, it speaks of the place of reason and intellect. The words here may have been on the mind of the psalmist when he wrote these words, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Each individual was to take heed to himself and to watch over his soul diligently in order to remember the precepts of the law. 
If any of you has ever learned another language, you know that unless you actively maintain that language, you will forget it and you will do so very quickly. This is what Moses is telling the people. I lived in Japan six years and I learned Japanese quite well and I can speak a little bit to my wife now and that's about it. I lived in Malaysia and I could speak Malaysian quite well and I can hardly speak it at all anymore. I learned Korean because I was in a Korean church for quite a few years. I can sing in Korean. I can still read it, but I can't speak it at all anymore. You lose these things very, very quickly. The same is true with all of these precepts, and in particular, our religion, our theology. You don't pay attention to the Bible and read it every day. You are not going to remember it. I assure you of this, okay? If you don't actively pay heed to the law... And if you do not actively watch over yourself and your actions in relation to the law, the precepts of the law will depart from your mind and they will be absolutely gone. You will not even have a memory of them unless you are once again schooled in them. That sounds a lot like 2 Peter 1 verse 9. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go read that verse today. Further, a knowledge of the law, like a knowledge of maintaining a free society, is not congenital. It must be carefully guarded and passed on. Verse 9 continues, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. And teach them to your sons and to your sons' sons. This is the first time that Israel is instructed to not only pay heed to the word of the Lord, but to actively pass that word on to their children after them. However, the same thought will be again seen several more times throughout Deuteronomy. If a person fails to keep guard over what he knows, he will forget it, having it crowded out by all kinds of other things that come in and replace whatever that knowledge is. I was in wastewater for many, many years, and I have to take CEUs every two years to remind myself. And in between that time, I've forgotten all of the wastewater treatment. Okay, woe to the plant that hires me back if I ever stop being a preacher because I won't know what I'm doing. And even if that person actively and carefully guards his knowledge, unless he passes it on to those who come after him, that knowledge will perish with him. Further, this isn't just something that will happen to each individual. Rather, it is something that will happen to the entire nation collectively as well. We're seeing that in the United States of America right now. Even though spoken in the singular, it is referring to the whole nation. Unless the law is remembered and heeded by those under it, and unless it is taught to those who come after them, it will die from both the individual and the collective memory. While Moses is speaking these words, his coming replacement, Joshua, is sitting right there with him. And yet we read this in Judges chapter 2. Guess what? It goes Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Within one generation of the exhortation by Moses, the very thing that he implores them to do is the very thing that they failed to do. An entire generation did not know the Lord nor those things that he had done because the parents failed to protect, keep, and pass on that which they knew. This was corrected from time to time through the Lord's chastening hand or his active intervention more than for any other reason. But no sooner would they turn back to the Lord than they would fall away once again. One generation to the next failing to instill in their children the things that would keep them from his wrath. Eventually, the knowledge of his statutes and judgments was so far removed from them that they didn't even know that they existed. 
And this is seen at the time of King Josiah, and the entire chapter must be read to understand both the situation and the ramifications of what transpired because of it. So I'm going to take you to 2 Kings chapter 22, and I'm going to read you the entire chapter. And the reason why it's not on the printed copy you got is because I'm too cheap to print it off. And so here we go, 2 Kings chapter 22. Listen carefully and listen to the lesson of Israel. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Yedida, the daughter of Adaiah of Bozkat. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work, who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the damages of the house." to carpenters and builders and masons and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. However, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand because they deal faithfully. Then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan the scribe, well, here it is, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word saying your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work who oversee the house of the lord then shaphan the scribe showed the king saying hilkiah the priest has given me a book and shaphan read it before the king this is the law of moses and they didn't even know that it existed it was lost to their collective memory now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord. He read the words of Deuteronomy, and he was so scared, he said, the Lord must be hugely angry at us. Great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Achbor, Shaphan, and Asaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. Then she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forgotten me and burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have read, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and wept before me, 
I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers. It's more merciful for the king to die than to see what he's going to do to Israel. And you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. Moses is imploring them to do these things now because the Lord had already done so 40 years earlier. He gave them a display which was intended to impress upon their minds glory and which was then intended to pass on as a truthful account to each subsequent generation. Verse 10, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb. The words especially concerning are not in the original and they are an unnecessary insert. Moses is referring to the law, the source of the law, and beginning of the giving of that law. It is this day in Horeb that is the basis of everything Moses is relaying concerning the law. The people stood before the Lord, and they became a people under the law at that time. In verse 9, Moses referred to ha-devarim, or the things that their eyes had seen. Now he explains what those things are that he was referring to. It is important for us to remember that the giving of the law at Sinai came at the same time of the year that the descending of the Holy Spirit came to the church, Pentecost. The two accounts at this time, spanned by almost 1,500 years, was to teach us a lesson. It is a lesson detailed throughout the New Testament. In Romans, Paul says that the law, which was intended to bring life, actually brought death. Later, Paul refers to this in 2 Corinthians. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Here he goes again, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Again, in Galatians 4, Paul compares the two covenant and calls the covenant at Sinai bondage. But he says those of the new covenant are free. In the book of Hebrews, the author time and again speaks of the superiority of the new covenant over the old. And in Hebrews 12, he specifically refers to the account which Moses will now remember. We don't want to get our minds too far away from these new covenant truths as we evaluate what Moses will say. This is because the very covenant which was promised to be life for the people turned out to be death for them. It is not that the fault is with the law, though, but with man's inability to live by what the law says. The initial giving of this law is what forms the basis of the entire law, and it is that initial giving that Moses appeals to. Verse 10 going on, when the Lord said to me, gather the people to me. This is a condensed version of what was stated in Exodus 19. There, the people were told to consecrate themselves, including not coming near their wives, meaning intimately, and they were to wash their clothes. After the consecration, the Lord was to appear to them on the third day atop Sinai. Verse 10 continues, and I will let them hear my words. These words here tie in with the things 
their eyes saw, which Moses referred to in verse 9. The word he used there, had devarim, literally means the words. When hearing, one doesn't actually see the words, but to us, things are made up of words, and so our minds can make a mental picture of things we hear. The Lord here says, Ve'ashmi'em et devarai, and I will let them hear my words. In the Bible, and in both Testaments, the words see, heart, and eyes are used again and again in the same verse. The heart discerns and understands what the eyes see. And sometimes the eyes see without visually beholding something. Here we have the Lord coming to reveal himself to Israel in two ways. One, through his spoken word, and two, in a terrifying display of his glory through sight and sound. This was to impress upon the people that the law, which was being given, did in fact proceed from the Lord. Thus, as much as the sight and sound revealed the power of the Lord, the words revealed the nature of the Lord. The people will not see the Lord, but the words he speaks will convey to them images nonetheless. It is these mental images that come with the commandments that will, at the same time, be intended for convicting them of holding fast to what they are told, and yet also bring to mind possibilities of breaking the very laws that they are about to hear. Paul explains that in detail in Romans chapter 7, and it is what we will consider in the verses ahead. The Lord, at the giving of the law, understood this. Because of this, and known to us now, but unknown to Israel at the time, the law is only an interim step in the panorama of redemptive history. Thus, despite the next words of the Lord, which seemed like the purpose of the law, the actual purpose of the giving of the law was to identify this problem in us, to teach us that it is the case, and then, by taking that information, it is intended to lead us by the hand directly to the cross of Jesus Christ, where we can find grace. Not knowing this at the time, the Lord next says, verse 10 continues, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. The word lamad, meaning learning, teaching, instructing, that was introduced in verse 4-1 two weeks ago, and which was repeated in verse 4-5 last week, is again used here in this verse two times, learn and teach. As we have seen, it comes from a primitive root signifying to goad, which is what is done to prod an animal along. The Lord intends to prod the people through this law, one, to fear him, and two, to teach their children. But this prodding isn't confined to the land of Israel. Instead of the word ha'aretz, or the land, he says ha'adama, or the earth. Though almost interchangeable at times, the word adama speaks of the ground itself, without distinction to a specific location. When under the law, wherever one goes on the earth, he remains under the law. Sad lesson for Israel because they rejected Jesus Christ and were exiled among the nations. It doesn't matter what ground they stand on, they are bound to that law. The physical boundaries of the lands of the earth do not end the spiritual confines of the burden of the law. The same is true with the generations under the law. The burden of the law does not end with the death of the parent that continues on to the children. How do we know that? We just read it from 2 Kings 22. They were bound to that law even though they had completely forgotten that there was a law at all. The parents failed, but the people would be punished 
because it wasn't passed on to them. Thus, whether the children are taught the law or not, the burden of the law remains. Therefore, the Lord includes them in his words now, both in word and in a visible manifestation. In the hearing of these commands, I find no hope. Even from the first one, I was done in for sure. I used to think I was pretty great, but I see I'm just a dope. Compared to God's standard, I am certainly impure. I tremble to think of my guilt, how it weighs me down. I fear to face God on my own deeds for righteousness. I once thought God would smile at me, but no, it will be a frown. I bear such a heavy guilt, my God. I am such a mess. Oh, but then I heard of Jesus, sweet Jesus. He lived the life that I could never, ever live. And he gave it up for sinners like me. Yes, for all of us. In exchange for my life of sin, his perfect life he did give. Oh, what a savior, what a friend he is to me. Oh, my Lord Jesus, the one who has set me free. Our second thought today is darkness, cloud, and obscurity. It's verses 11 through 14. Verse 11, then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain. Exodus 19:17 says, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. It can be assumed that this means all the people, including women and children. The entire congregation was brought out and stood before the Lord. Before this, however, they were given explicit instructions from Exodus 19. You shall set bounds for the people all around saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. That alone would have been terrifying to the people. But the awesome sight they beheld would have been even more so. Verse 11 going on, And the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven. The Hebrew is much more expressive, saying, And the mountain was burning with fire to the heart of the heavens. It is as if a continuous raging burning reached up beyond the eyesight of the people. The display of a mountain actually burning would be beyond the ability of the people to mentally grasp. The thought of the fire here is that of judgment burning up everything that it touches. The law is given, and thus infractions of it bear a deserved penalty. Once again, 2 Kings 22. It is the opposite of the picture seen in the coming of Christ. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Though the law burns with fire, that can be quenched through the fountain of water which comes through the grace of God in Christ. But at the giving of the law, there was more. The fire came, verse 11 continues, with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. Choshek anan ve'arafel. Darkness, cloud, and obscurity. The imagery here is that of being completely unable to see. The Lord and everything about him is totally hidden from their eyes. This, even though they strain with all intent to obtain the slightest view, it is exactly the opposite of what John writes about concerning Christ. In John 1, 5, he says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The idea of the word John uses is that the darkness is unable to overtake the light. Though the law brings complete darkness, the grace of Christ brings complete light. 
Paul speaks of that in 2 Corinthians 4. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Until the coming of Christ, however, the people were faced with the overwhelming yoke of knowing that the same Lord who presented himself in judgment and total obscurity did so with accompanying words. Verse 12, and the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. The fire of judgment with implied ceaseless and complete destruction is where the Lord speaks from. The eyes were unable to see anything in the gloom and darkness which would allow them to know the Lord behind it. Instead, they only knew him through the words of law, which bring forth death, and that from the midst of the fire of judgment. What a terrible prospect to consider. The display resulted in what I mentioned a few moments ago from Hebrews 12. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet with the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. The people were terrified at what they beheld. And even their leader who represented them before the Lord was left utterly afraid at the giving of the law. What a marked difference to that which Christ left his people at the giving of the new covenant. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Do you see the difference, the law and Christ? Who would want to go back to this? Just yesterday, it might have been yesterday, I got an email from somebody. She's been sitting under a rabbi that teaches reinserting the Torah into your life. Yeah for all this time and she emailed me and she said I'm so thankful I watched Sergio and Rhoda's video because they said to watch you and I've been brought out of bondage and she says I want to come and visit your congregation she says my life is free now and I was so happy I hope she doesn't mind I send it on to Sergio could so he could see the impact that his videos are having this is what we're facing right here it's either total bondage fire judgment and separation from God or it is the peace of God in Jesus Christ. It's the darkness of the law or the light of Christ. It's the fire of judgment or it's the water of life. It's all right there in the Bible and people choose to reject what Jesus Christ did and they go back under this impossible law and they condemn themselves. But some come out and find life. Thank God for this person that emailed me. She made my day yesterday. Verse 12 continues, you heard the sound of the words but saw no form. You only heard a voice. The lesson of the law is found in these words. The law speaks. It speaks words of bondage, expected judgment, and that then leading to death. The only place to appeal a violation of the law is to either precepts within it, meaning like the Day of Atonement, or to the unseen Lord who gave it in the first place. That's where David went. Remember the 51st Psalm? Oh, God, have mercy on me. I've committed adultery. I've killed a man. Where am I going to go? But for those after the first generation, this means a completely new dynamic is introduced. Without seeing the Lord or a representation of the Lord, one must have faith that the Lord actually exists. Such a state will lead to one of a few inevitable paths a person can follow. 
The first is to believe in the Lord and to follow him in some measure, be it wholeheartedly, partially, or failingly. The second would be to not believe in the Lord and ignore the commandments of the law. Another would be to not believe in the Lord and obey the law anyway, or something like that. None of these are unlike the state of the believer in Christ today, though, are they? We have not seen Jesus, and like those under the law, all we have are the accounts which tell us of what occurred in the past. Either way, whether under the law or in Christ, the key to a right relationship with the Lord is through faith. David understood this after having violated the law. Here it is, Psalm 51. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. The law mandated it. He said, the Lord, you don't need it. I know you don't want it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The law demanded that. The sacrifices of God are not those. They are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. The law demanded sacrifices for sin, but David knew that a sacrifice was only as good as the heart attitude behind it. Thus, we can see that the same day that the law was introduced, a spirit of self-worth because of the law was also introduced. For those who looked to the law for their justification, it wasn't because they took to heart the terrible display of judgment which came at the giving of the law. If they did, they too would quake at the fear of their infractions of it. Rather, they looked to the allowances within the law or even beyond the law for their justification. Yeah, I might have sinned, but this goat will take care of that. And further, the more perfectly I adhere to the law, the more God will favor me. This is the principal error of what we might call Pharisaism. It comes from the self-righteous attitude which springs forth from going through the motions of the law without a care about having offended the one who gave the law in the first place. It is what Jesus stated to the people in Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Ooh, I give tithes of all that I possess. Ah, and the tax collector standing far off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Whether the Pharisee believed in God at all or not, he did not look to God as the source of his righteousness. Rather, he looked to the law, additions to the law, and his observance of those things as his righteousness. The tax collector, like David, looked beyond the law to the giver of it. This law cannot forgive me, but you can. Unfortunately, the same spirit which filled the Pharisee fills much of the church today. The grace of God and his tender mercies are set aside by and through law observance. None of us deserve the grace and mercy of God which is found in Christ Jesus. And we prove that point in one of two ways. One, we can trust in Christ and only in Christ for our justification, thus proving that we are saved by Christ. Or two, we can trust in our adherence to certain precepts within the law of Moses, thus showing that Christ's grace does not matter to us. We cannot have it both ways. The giving of the law of which the Ten Commandments is the basis demonstrates this to us. Verse 13, so he declared to you his covenant. 
Here it says berito, his covenant. There is no exchange between the Lord and the people. It is solely the Lord's pronouncement. Nothing can be added to it by them. They are words of law coming from an unseen source and in a terrifying display of power. But the display is not the Lord. The display is simply that. It's an effect produced by the Lord. But the words are a reflection of the Lord. And as the words form the covenant, then the covenant itself is a perfect, even if incomplete, reflection of the Lord. If the people are told to not approach the mountain lest they die, then what a great horror could be expected if they violated the words of his covenant. This is all the more poignant because these were not mere admonitions. I want you to try to do these things. These were unalterable commandments. Once again, go back to 2 Kings 22 that we read. These people were going to be punished because they did not observe the law. Verse 13 continues, which he commanded you to perform. The display of power was to impress upon the people the terror they should feel at violating the covenant. It was spoken by him. It was imposed upon them, and they were to understand the consequences for failing to adhere. Verse 13 continues, the Ten Commandments. Aseret ha-devarim, ten, the words. What would happen if the Lord never said, you shall not murder? Then murder would not be a violation of the law. You could go kill somebody and nobody could do anything about it. And what happens in one's mind when the words, you shall not murder, are spoken? The mind makes a mental image of doing just that. Thus, it shows that we know what murder is. And what is it that we do when we get in an argument with someone that we really, really hate? It may be that in our mind, we form an image of killing him, just as we did when we were told to not murder. This is what Jesus was referring to when he spoke of committing adultery, one of the Ten Commandments. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery, But I say to you that whatever or whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Guilty as charged right here, folks. This is what the law does. It condemns us through mere thought. And this is what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 7. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and it killed me. It is certain that every person standing there receiving the ten words did exactly this as the Lord spoke them out. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. And some of the people's minds went to the gods they had set up in their tent or to a god they once worshipped in Egypt. He said, honor your father and your mother. And some of them at that very moment thought in their minds, my father is a loser and my mother is pathetic. On down the line of the 10 words, each one brought to mind a thought which caused some person to violate it even while he was receiving it. This is the infection in us known as sin. And it is what Paul refers to. The commandment which was to bring life, I'm standing there being told this commandment, brought death because sin took the occasion by the commandment deceived them, and killed them, even while they stood there receiving them. But it didn't end there. The commandment which brought death was made permanent. Verse 13 going on, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. This is what Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The letter, meaning the tablets of stone, kills. 
Only the Spirit can grant life. The entire history of Israel is given to show us that we need Christ and that without Him, we will remain in a state of death. Stone is unyielding, and when something is written on it, folks, there it remains. Thank God for the stone of Israel, Jesus Christ, by whom these commandments were fulfilled and whose body was then broken. He said, this is my body broken for you. And you wonder why he said that? He was making a picture of the Ten Commandments. My body is broken for you. His body was broken for us so that we might be brought out from such bondage and terror and into new life and a heavenly hope. Man, my hair is standing up all over my arms. I've been practicing this now for eight days in a row, and I'm still excited by what Christ did for us. Verse 14, and the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments. There is an emphasis in the words in regard to Moses and me, Jehovah commanded at that time. This is certainly stated this way because of the people's reaction after hearing the Lord speak out the law. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. The display was sufficient to accomplish its intended goal. And so from then on, Moses was given the words of the law, which he then passed on to the people as instruction to prod them along. These statutes and judgments began immediately after that in Exodus chapter 20, and they continued on through numbers. They now resume once again in the book of Deuteronomy, and this instruction was so, verse 14 finishes with, that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. The intent of these statutes, judgments, commands, ordinances, and so on was to lead the people through their lives in Canaan. They are a unique and perfect form of instruction if the people adhered to them. But even from the first days after having crossed the Jordan, they began to violate them. During the first battle to subdue the land, even during the battle itself, one of the people violated the 10th commandment, coveting. And he also violated other precepts which had been laid down in the forming of the government as well. This pattern continued all the way through the time of the law, and it continued through the time of the coming of Christ as well. And it continues on in the world today. Where law is given, law is violated. And with the violation of law, there is the imputation of sin. The only way to be freed from this bondage is to be freed from the law. And in order to be freed from the law, one must be given grace. The law and grace are mutually exclusive. Either one is under law or one is under grace. Not only has Israel had innumerable laws laid upon them already, but Moses is going to heap more on them in the many chapters ahead. There's nothing wrong with the law, though. Paul says that the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. The problem does not reside in the law. Rather, the problem is in us. In order to correct this problem, God did something wonderful. He sent his son into the world to do what we could not do, live out the law as God expects. The remarkable thing about it is that the law itself proclaims its own ending in him. That was seen in our text verse today, and it will be confirmed in our closing verse as well. For now, please understand that if you are caught up in a church that asks you to come under the precepts of the law of Moses, you are excluding God's grace by doing so. 
come to God through Christ and be reconciled to him through his fulfillment of this terrifying law, which was given by an infinitely holy God. His justice must be satisfied, and it will either be through Christ's fulfillment of it on your behalf or of your failure of it being reckoned to you by the imputation of sin. So choose wisely. Choose Christ. Is it not scary to think of living under the law of Moses? I mean, God was merciful to Israel, but it's also a scary thing. And these people, you know, they heard that voice. I said this in the sermon. I want to repeat it to you now. They heard that voice and they heard the trumpet and they saw the fire and the smoke that they couldn't even peer into. It was so dark. But that's only a display of God. That's not God. The words that come out from him are a reflection of who he is, though. And so every single precept of the law, put a tassel on your garment with a blue cord in it, that is as binding as any other part of the entire law. And if you fail to do that one thing, you ought to be as terrified at that as having stood at the base of Sinai and heard all of that commotion. You see the penalty of the law, the weight and burden of the law, and people want to go back under that, that have found Christ or that could have found Christ? Absolutely not. Terrible. I got a closing verse for you. Let me give a little gospel presentation first. I tell you what, if you know that you have sinned and you know that you have sinned, then you need Jesus Christ. And it's so simple. All you need to do is say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I need Jesus. He lived the life I can't live. He gave up that life in exchange for my sins, and I accept that payment on my behalf. I believe that God did this in him, and I believe that God raised him from the dead to prove it. I believe in Jesus, and you will be saved. That is the end of your salvation needs. After that point, everything that is added to it is based on rewards and losses when you stand before the Lord that just saved you. I would ask you to do it today. Got a closing verse from John chapter 1. Remember I said a minute ago that the law itself speaks of its own ending? Here we go. And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, the law is not grace. But the Lord said that the people will live forever. You can't live forever without grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father has declared him. Good stuff. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay, good stuff. Now, I got a question for you before we get in the little Maserati here. I said that uh, the letter kills, but, or Paul actually said, I just said it in the sermon, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And the Bible gives us an actual demonstration of that for us to remember and to apply to ourselves. He gave us a typological demonstration of that. It's found both in the old and new testaments. What is that demonstration? The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. I gave it in at least three sermons in Exodus. Okay, as soon as I say it, you're going to start punching yourself in the head because you know that you heard this. When the law was given, Moses then went up and he got the tablets of the Ten Commandments and he came down. And in the meantime, the people had built a golden calf. And Moses said, strap your swords on your side and go throughout the camp and kill anybody that comes in your way. And that day, 
3,000 people perished. But in the New Testament, it says that the giving of the Spirit, 3,000 people were saved. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Nobody remembered that. Shame on you. Never forget that again. God was giving us a lesson for us. Those lessons are very important because they show us and they help us remember these truths, okay? Short poem and we'll take the Lord's Supper. Thank God for the Lord's Supper and what it signifies. Sometimes we take it a little too flippantly in our hearts and in our lives. We should sit down and think through what Christ did for us when we take that. This is entitled, That They May Teach Their Children. We've all got children or grandchildren somewhere in our lives, maybe a nephew or a niece, whatever. Talk to them about the Lord while they are still young and ready to hear it. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments, please do say, as are in all this law which I set before you this day. Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, all that has been, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren." especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb when the Lord said to me, gather the people to me and I will let them hear my words spoken plainly, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children of their incomparable worth. Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain burned with fire during my address to the midst of heaven with darkness cloud and thick darkness and the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire you heard the sound of the words all around but saw no form you only heard a voice one that shook the ground so he declared to you his covenant which he commanded you to perform these he made known the ten commandments and he wrote them on two tablets of stone then the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments to you. Them I did express that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be ever faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you. To us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can learn this lesson of the law and then we can apply it in the receiving of the grace. Thank you for what Jesus Christ did. And Lord, it's a terrible world we're living in. There's death, there's destruction, there's people that are committing atrocities all over things that are beyond our comprehension are happening in the world now that we would not have thought of five years ago. But you can bring the people back to yourselves if it is your will. And that would be our first prayer. Our first prayer would be for revival and people turning back to you. But if that's not going to happen, then we pray for a speedy departure out of here to be with you and that you righteously judge the world, which is so unfaithfully rejected you. Lord, whatever your will is, in the meantime, we will continue to pray for our leaders and especially for re-election of those leaders who will honor you and bring honor to you through their decisions and their laws which they pass. And especially our President Trump, who's doing such a good job and he's helping stem the tide that is going on in this nation, but maybe it's not meant to be. We'll just wait and see what you have in store for us. But either way, we as Christians will hold fast to you 
We will praise you. We will keep the joy in our heart even if we don't have happiness in our lives because you have done everything for us and we are secure in our, our trek back to our heavenly home. Thank you for that and we praise you and glorify you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.